0: Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Well, hello there, and welcome back to our study, Unstoppable, through the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And we're coming today to chapter 25 and 26. I'm going to cover both of those today because it's one continuous story. And the study that I want to share with you I've simply called, Surrounded. Many years ago, Katrina and I were watching a James Bond movie, one of the older ones that starred Pierce Brosnan as Bond, and I don't really remember the name or the movie or anything about it except for one thing. Bond and his girlfriend were in a very bad situation, as they so often are, in a marketplace in Thailand or somewhere, and they were completely surrounded. People everywhere with guns aimed at them, and there was no way out. And the girl looked at him in a panic and said, James, we're trapped. But he glanced at her and then back at all of the people around them. And he said with determination, something, one word that I didn't get. I said, Katrina, what did he say? She said, he said, never, never trapped. Well, I don't know why that little bit of dialogue has stayed with me, but I do think it represents a Christian truth. As children of God through Jesus Christ, even when we are surrounded on every side, we are never trapped. And that's the lesson that I want us to see today in these two chapters. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts 25 and 26. If you have been following these studies in the book of Acts, you know that Paul was seized in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21 after his third missionary journey, and he had been moved to Caesarea for his own safety. He was being housed there in the palace of the governor, and he was confined there actually for two years while Felix and his young and beautiful wife, Drusilla, governed Palestine. We looked at that in the last episode. Uh, Paul was a prisoner, uh, but the charges against him were vague. Uh, What he did during this time period, we don't know. I suspicion he used it to rest and pray and study and share the gospel whenever he could. Maybe he wrote some letters which we no longer have. And I also think that it's during this time that Luke was writing the third gospel, and no doubt Paul encouraged him and maybe gave some input, and they collaborated on it a little bit together. But finally, Governor Felix was recalled to Rome because of his incompetence and complaints about his leadership and a brutality, and a new governor was appointed, and his name was Festus. When I was growing up, I watched Gunsmoke, and the character that was named Festus, but this is a different Festus. This is Porcius Festus. Well, Felix, the old governor, had made a, made a mess of things. Law and order had broken down. Violence was increasing. Travel was dangerous. Mobs were controlling parts of the country. Jerusalem was near rebellion. And Festus was appointed to replace Felix and to regain order. We know very little about this man, Porcius Festus. Josephus mentions him and says that he was the governor of Judea for two or three years, and that he did a lot to rid the land of armed groups of bandits, but that he died in office in A.D. 61 or 62 of natural causes. In other words, he was a governor for two or three years and then developed an illness of some sort and died in office, and he didn't really live long enough to change the trajectory of history very much in Palestine. The problem with uh our story here is that the new governor festus was inexperienced in jewish affairs and so It says at the beginning of the chapter that three days after arriving in Caesarea, he traveled on to Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish leaders and to get the lay of the land. This story is told at the beginning of this 25th chapter of Acts. And while Festus was in discussions with these leaders, they, of course, brought up this long-delayed case of the apostle. They were still out to get him, the Sanhedrin, and the high priest and the Jewish leadership. And so to ingratiate himself with the Jews... Festus agreed to reopen the case. So he stayed in Jerusalem for some time a little over a week and then he returned to Caesarea and as soon as he did so he convened the Roman court and ordered that Paul be brought to him. So let's pick up with chapter 25 and verse 7. It says, When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. Now, notice this. I'll come back to that later. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. So Paul was literally surrounded by his enemies, but he wasn't a man easily intimidated, especially because of his relationship with Christ, and so he denied the charges, and in verse 8 he said, "'I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar.'" Verse nine continues, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? And Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews As you yourself know very well, if, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. This is the third time in the book of Acts when Paul exerted his rights as an official Roman citizen. He refused to be handed over to the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin or to have his Roman trial conducted in Jerusalem, which would would have been a hostile venue. He knew the dangers that would pose, and so he appealed to Caesar, and by law, that stopped his proceedings. So verse 12 says, after Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. The Caesar to whom Paul appealed was none other than Emperor Nero, but this was the beginning of, or near the beginning, of the young emperor's reign, and his cruel insanity was not yet as apparent as it would be later. But in any case, this was Paul's one recourse. So all of this put Festus in the middle of a rather difficult Jewish problem, just at a time when he was trying to reduce tensions in Palestine. He had to send Paul on judicial appeal to Rome, but on what charges? He needed advice from someone who knew more about the Jewish issues than he did, and so he decided to consult someone named King Agrippa. Agrippa was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the king who had tried to destroy Jesus as a baby. And Agrippa was the Roman official who was now in charge of the northern area of Palestine. His capital was at Banias, or Pan, it's sometimes called, or Panias, or it's also called Caesarea Philippi. This was a city in the north of the nation of Israel north of the Sea of Galilee at the foot of Mount Hermon. When I lead trips to Israel, we often drive up there. It's near the Lebanese border today because the biblical history there is very rich. This is where Jesus took his disciples once on a retreat. This is also at the headwaters of the Jordan River. Agrippa was the king or the local official who was in charge of this whole area, and Agrippa was also given custodial responsibility over the Temple of Jerusalem, which his great-grandfather had rebuilt, and in fact, the rebuilding process was still going on. Well, Agrippa and his sister Bernice had come to visit Festus and to welcome him to Palestine and into their region. They were making an official welcoming trip to Caesarea. Not Caesarea Philippi, but the Caesarea by the sea. So Agrippa was in Caesarea Philippi, but Festus was in Caesarea by the sea, the Roman headquartering city for the occupying forces. Now, there had been widespread rumors that Agrippa and his sister Bernice had an incestuous relationship. Those rumors exist to this day. Agrippa never married and his sister never married successfully. They kept ending up back together. So whenever I get frustrated with our political leaders today, I think of the kinds of characters that Paul had to put up with. Well, at any rate, this is the Agrippa and Bernice who came to pay their regards on Festus to congratulate him for his new position and to stay and visit with him in his palace for several days. So verse 14 and following says, Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. That is, Festus decided to consult with Agrippa, who had been around longer and knew what was going on. He said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that this is not a Roman custom to hand over anyone before they had faced their accusers and had never had the opportunity of defending themselves against the charges. So when they came here with me, I did not delay the case but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on those charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Well, all of this was a very interesting topic to Agrippa, and he said he would like to meet with Paul. So the story continues at verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice, this brother and sister, the strange brother and sister, came with great pomp pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome, but I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write, for I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. So now, once again, Paul is allowed to speak, and he speaks on his own behalf, on his own defense, before a legal proceeding here with all of these officials around him and with all of this pomp and circumstance in the governor's palace in Caesarea. But he doesn't simply view his situation here and his moment of speaking as a legal defense. He views it as an evangelistic opportunity. There's a lesson there for us. Whenever we're in a situation where we we feel like we're on the defensive, we should look around to see how in that situation we can share the gospel. So Paul presents his presentation, and that's how chapter 26 begins. You see, it's one unbroken story. In verse two, Paul said, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today As I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. I suppose he meant as opposed to Governor Festus, who was in over his head. What Paul continued in verse 4, the Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope And what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Now that's verse 8. I think it's one of the greatest apologetic verses in the Bible. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? This is one of the greatest questions of logic and philosophy that has ever been posed. This is really one of my favorite sentences from the Apostle Paul. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? In other words, if there is a God who possesses all the essential elements necessary for being God, if he is omnipotent and eternal and self-existent and all-sufficient and unchangeable and unchanging, why wouldn't it be logical to assume that he could do something like bringing the dead to life? If there is a God who designed and brought into being the entire cosmos, every furtherest star of the galaxies out of nothing and from nothing, why is it so inconceivable that he could raise Jesus from the dead? If there is a God who took a handful of dirt and fashioned it into a human being to begin with and breathed his breath into it and created a living soul, why would you doubt that he could then raise a man like this who had died? If there is a God who reigns over the scene, and the unseen realm, who is Lord of the dead and the living, and who loves his creation and wants his people to be with him forever, why should any of us consider it incredible that a God like that would have the ability to raise the dead? Well, Paul went on to share the story of his conversion on the Damascus Road. It's interesting to me that during his missionary tours, Paul preached the gospel But during his time of imprisonment in the latter chapters of Acts, he was more likely to share the gospel by giving his testimony. But just as Paul was getting wound up, Festus interrupted him. Verse 24 says, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. He knew that Paul was a brilliant man with a great education, one of the most intelligent men on the globe of his day. Verse 25, I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and rational. Now there we have another great apologetic statement. What Paul was saying, the gospel itself, The biblical message is true and reasonable. The gospel is not only true, but it is reasonable. It is intellectually logical. It is coherent. Believing in Christianity is not a blind faith based on unreasonable assumptions. It is a logical faith based on historical events, and those events correspond perfectly to an intellectual framework given to us in the Bible through revelation, which gives them meaning. The theology and the doctrine of Christianity is not a fabricated assortment of odd beliefs. It is a cohesive explanation for historical events that have changed history and have the power to change our lives. It is true, it is reasonable, and festus, had little understanding of these things, but Agrippa was very knowledgeable about them. And so Paul continued in verse 26 saying, The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely with him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, for it was not done in a corner. It wasn't done in secret. And here is another great bit of Christian apologetics. Christianity is not a secret religion. It's not based on hidden mysteries. It is as public as the call of Abraham, the land of Israel, the prediction of the prophets, the birth of Jesus, the death and resurrection of the Messiah, and the descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. What God has done, he has done publicly and openly in this world so that all of the earth can see it. So sounding just like an evangelist, having given these tremendous apologetical issues and points to Agrippa, Paul posed the question straight to him. King Agrippa, this is verse 27. Do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. What a gospel presentation. Acribba didn't have as long to live as he thought. Within two or three years, he would be dead of some illness. He missed the greatest opportunity of his life. He got up and he left. Verse 30 says the king rose, and with him the governor, and Bernice, and those sitting with him. And after they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Paul. But I don't think that Paul second-guessed his decision It's not likely that he would have been set free because Festus didn't have the political leverage with the Jews to do that. All of this was proceeding according to God's plan to get Paul into Rome where he could share the gospel with the Praetorian Guard and with the highest officials of the Roman Empire. Well, here's the point that I want to make. This is a passage with some great apologetical information, but there's also some spiritual information here. About us. Notice that Paul was encircled here by problems, which had been going on for two or three years. It was an extended set of difficulties. And in his hearing before Governor Festus, as I said, he was literally surrounded by his enemies. Acts 25 and verse 7, going back to that verse, says When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, they were in a semicircle around him and does it ever seem to you that you are surrounded by problems and burdens just like that you don't have just one adversary or adversity in front of you you have them all around you many times i like to reflect on stories like this in the bible in the light of other scriptures and in the light of the book of psalms as i read about paul being surrounded by his enemies i thought of how often the word surround occurs in the book of psalms it is used 19 times and sometimes it speaks of times when just like paul we are surrounded by enemies and problems in psalm 17 the psalmist talked about his mortal enemies who surrounded him in psalm 22 which is a messianic psalm he said he was surrounded by evil and by evil beings and by evil men and women like being surrounded by a herd of threatening bulls in a pasture. And in the same chapter, he said that he felt like he was being surrounded by a pack of mad dogs. Now imagine that that image. Can you imagine being surrounded on every side by a pack of rabid dogs? Psalm 40 verse 12 says, For troubles without number surround me. Sometimes we're just simply surrounded on every side by things that cause us pressure or stress or anxiety or things that cause us to lose our sleep or pace the floor. We have quite a bit of that imagery in the Bible. But the word surround is also used in another way in the book of Psalms to describe another set of realities that are surrounding us. Psalm 5 and verse 12 says, Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous, you surround them with your favor as with a shield. Psalm 32 verse 7 says, You are my hiding place, Lord. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. In the same psalm, we read, The Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in Him. And my favorite surrounding verse is Psalm 125, verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people, me and you, both now and forever. We can use this kind of picturesque language to our advantage. When you feel yourself surrounded by difficulty or critics or problems, remember that the invisible and the invincible presence of the hovering God surrounds you even closer and even tighter. Are we surrounded by difficulty? Yes. Are we trapped? Never. There's a very interesting visualization given in the second chapter of the prophet Zechariah. At that time, a returning remnant was trying to repopulate and rebuild Jerusalem and its temples, but they were surrounded by enemies. But the Lord said this in Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 5 about Jerusalem, And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, and I will be its glory within. In other words, to take this personally, the Lord is a wall of fire around us, and the glory in our midst. I read the story of a missionary lady in China who was often in dangerous places, but one night she woke woke up and this verse came vividly to her and she felt that the Lord was around her like a wall of fire wherever she went and the glory within her and she felt God had given her this very verse and she took it seriously. She said, the Lord himself is a wall of fire around me and the glory in my heart and her exploits were just amazing. Well, you know, we're also surrounded by the angels. Psalm 34, verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. And we're also surrounded by blessings and by mercy and by grace. Psalm 139 says, You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. So if you feel surrounded today the way that Paul was and that, Royal uh, Hall of Judgment in Caesarea, in the palace there, and he had his enemies all around him and the royalty before him, and he was alone and trying to give his defense. Well, if you feel surrounded like that, remember that Paul knew he was surrounded by the presence and the grace and the power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he simply gave a great apologetic message He says, why should it seem incredible that God could raise the dead? He said, this thing was not done in a corner. He said that it's rational, reasonable, and true to believe in the Christian faith. And through all that happened to him, God was simply leading him step by step into the life and work that had been appointed for him, and he went forward in victory. You can do the same, and so can I. So let me close with Psalm 125, part of which I quoted earlier. But these couple of verses at the beginning of Psalm 125 have been a source of comfort to me many times when I felt surrounded and trapped in life. It says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forever. Well, next time we'll go ahead and look at what happens next, which involves the most exciting, vivid story of a sea voyage and shipwreck in antiquity. But until then, please check out all of my books and all of the resources we have, recommend this podcast to other people and check in with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and at my website, robertjmorgan.com. This podcast was produced by Clearly Media and its founder, Joshua Rowe. Music is by Elijah Rowe. Thank you for listening, and may God be with you until we meet again.